Hey there, Daily Signal listeners. Doug Blair here. Happy President's Day to all of you. We are here for a bonus episode of the Daily Signal podcast featuring Fred Lucas and his interview with author Craig Shirley. They talk about his new book, April 1945, a hugely significant month in the history of the world. Hope you all enjoy. We are here with New York Times bestseller and historian, author of many books on Ronald Reagan, Craig Shirley. His newest book is April 1945, about the month April 1945, a hugely significant month in the history of the world and as came as World War II was coming to an end. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you, Fred. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. If we could talk about a little bit about the book, uh, this was a month that the world lost three hugely important world leaders. Uh, FDR died, uh, Hitler committed suicide, Mussolini was executed. Can, could, could you just talk about that a little bit in terms of uh, what impact this had on America and the world and the outlook people had? Franklin Roosevelt's death was one of those events that there, there's, there are times in America's life where, where, where you remember where you, where you were. You remember where you were on uh, December 7th, 1941. You remember where you were on September 11th, 2001. You remember where you were on November 22nd, 1963. And you remember where you were when I, I certainly, and my mother, God bless her, is still alive. And she remembers where she was when she heard that Franklin Roosevelt died. Franklin Roosevelt had been omnipresent in Americans' lives for 13 years, going back to uh, the beginning of 1933. You, you saw him in the newsreels. You heard him on the radio. You saw him in the newspapers. He, he defeated Republican presidential candidates, Alf Landon and Herbert Hoover and Wendell, Wilk, Wendell Wilkie and, uh, and Tom Dewey. Uh, he defeated them easily. And, and, and everybody knew, you know, Bob Dole wrote in his book, uh, A Soldier's Story, about being in, in a dugout, uh, what do you call it, uh, a, a foxhole, thank you. Uh, in in Italy, in April of 1944, and hearing trying to sleep there in the cold dirt at night, and hearing the sound of soldiers around him weeping, as the news spread of Franklin Roosevelt's death, his death touched everybody in America, and in fact everybody in the world. Uh, Churchill mourned him. De Gaulle mourned him. Chiang Kai-shek mourned him, Stalin mourned him. They lowered the flags to half staff in, in Moscow for an American president, if you can imagine that. Flags were lowered around the world. The war still kept going on, but it was, it was, it was burdened by the, by the knowledge that uh, Roosevelt wouldn't be there to see the final victory over Nazi Germany and the Empire of Japan. Hitler's suicide was something else is that even though he committed suicide, interestingly enough, a lot of people didn't believe it. They thought he'd gone underground. They thought it was a body double that had committed suicide. Uh, it was, there was a lot of disbelief surrounding 
the suicide of this cowardly and odious man. And of course, uh, for years, mysteries uh, surrounded him and, and, and conspiracy theories surrounded him about that he was still alive. Uh, is that body remains, of course, when he, he, he left instructions that he was, his body was to be burned after he committed suicide in the most cowardly fashion. He took a, uh, a, uh, a suicide pill and shot himself in the uh, head. Uh, and Ava Braun, uh, his, he, who he married in the last few minutes of his life, she also committed suicide. Their bodies were taken outside the bunker where he was in Berlin uh, and doused in gasoline and burned. They were later, they were later uh, identified and taken back to the Soviet Union, where they were kept in refrigeration. The bodies were kept in refrigeration for many, many years. And in fact, uh, they they're still there. The um, there were a lot of Germans who went through a who went through a uh, period of uh, remorse, like like you know, uh, children being caught doing very naughty things. And uh, and then being caught, and they the German people. In fact, I think still today, even to this day, there's a lot of remorse on the part of Germans. And of course, you know the mere fact no German emblem, no German no, swastika is you can't you can't you're not allowed to uh, print those in Germany. That's their form of retribution is to is to almost deny the existence of the Nazi state. Mussolini. Less so, he was a nasty, mean-spirited, evil man. Uh, he was he was over he was overthrown in Naples by the by the by the mob. Was dragged through the streets, was shot, was clubbed, was killed, was urinated on, had his jaw broken, all while he was dead. Uh, the mob did this to him to him, and to his um, to his mistress. But I, I mean Hitler. We we know he committed suicide. We we're we're, we're glad he. I mean, uh, to be frank, we're glad he committed suicide. If only he committed suicide years before, uh, a lot of lives could have been saved. Fourteen million, maybe more, could have been saved. But the one who's the longest lasting, whose legacy is the longest lasting, and had the longest impact in terms of the mourning of him, but also his impact on national international politics and national politics is Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, the New Deal has, for better or worse, become the extension of today to build back better, which is a, a macabre interpretation of, of the New Deal and fortunately uh, uh, has died in the Senate. But, but he made the Democratic Party, the modern Democratic Party, what it is today, which is the party of, of as, as Harry Hopkins said, tax and tax, spend and spend, elect and elect. And that is the mantra of the Democratic Party and has been uh, ever since the New Deal. His stamp is all over the modern uh, Democratic Party. Uh, and to some degree, uh, the Republican Party, too, is that he made both parties, uh, and not consciously, but uh, by, by the act of December 7th and the acts of uh, December 10th uh, of Germany and Italy declaring war in the United States, he then made... Uh, America, then the Democratic Party, then the Republican Party, internationalist, and we have been ever since. Following up on a point that you made a little earlier about, for a lot of Americans, FDR was the only president they knew in their lifetime. Was there a lot of trepidation in America when Harry Truman 
stepped in this role, whether he was no, ready yeah, for this yeah, role? Yeah, that, that is, Fred, that's a great question. It is amazing how Americans can seamlessly move from one era to the other. You know, in 19, before 1962, uh, we hadn't launched a man in space. And in 1962, we launched John Glenn in space. This is this is a, an astonishing thing. A man in space, a man outside the the Earth's gravitational pull, and yet uh, we move seamlessly from we were men of the Earth to being uh, men of the uh, outside the Earth to being galactic men. And yet we, we went about our lives as if nothing ever happened. You know, people went to work, they took road buses, they cooked meals, they raised babies. And it was the same with, thing with, uh, with FDR dying and Truman becoming president. There was a period of mourning on the part of all Americans, and they listened to it on the radio and looked at it in the newspapers and things like this, and they went to church and that. But, but, there was, but the, the, the American experiment is, is astonishing and miraculous because tanks don't roll in the streets, troops aren't uh, deployed, there are no house-to-house searches. We move seamlessly from, from one president to another and take it as, as simply as a matter of course, that this is the way things happen, this is the way things are done in the United States. So there was, there was speculation, well, Truman will be more conservative, or Truman will be less isolationist, or Truman will be more anti-communist, all of which are true. Truman was more anti-communist, but because the, the, because the communists at Potsdam and, and other places acted like royal assholes, and of course they tried to invade Greece right after the war, and Truman was forced to send the Eighth Fleet to the Mediterranean to repulse them. So there was the, the, the idle chatter, the parlor game about what kind of president it was going to be, but the, but the mere fact that he had become president was an accepted fact. In this book, uh, you write about how the Holocaust was really discovered, how the uh, the horrors oh, of, of all this God. out there. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how that was a shock oh, to so sure. many people? Uh, you know what's interesting? The Russians discovered Auschwitz. Dachau was discovered, I believe, by the by the Americans. But th- there were all over Western and Eastern Europe, two or three hundred death camps. It wasn't just Auschwitz. It wasn't just Dachau. It wasn't just Treblinka. It wasn't just Dachau. There, there, there were hundreds of, of death factories for killing all over Europe. And, of course, the Jews of Europe, but also anybody who was a political opponent of the Third Reich, anybody who uh, Poles, Russians, uh, homosexuals, gypsies, they also— it, it was 6 million Jews, but it was also 4 million uh, people in the other categories— who were, who were put, to, put to death in these factories for killing. But what's really interesting, uh, Fred, is, is that the New York Times and the Washington Post rarely, if ever, reported that it was Jews uh, who were primarily being exterminated by the Nazis. They would say, well, these people died at Auschwitz, or this people died, you know, news report, Dachau, blah, 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 you know, but, but they never reported there was Jews. It's a, it's a really tragic thing that, that they chose to ignore this faith and these people and this creed. And this, it's almost like killing them a second time by, by denying their, their existence as a, as a people, uh, but just merely reporting them as, as numbers.
It's, it was a terrible thing done by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Of course, the Washington Post was a, at the time, was a Jim Crow newspaper, was a paper, paper of the South. And when an, a black person was arrested or died or w- became a firefighter, any other thousand ways they were reported in the newspaper, it would say, John Pop, comma, Negro, comma, today was arrested for breaking and entering, or today was hailed as great hero in Europe. They would, but for a white person, they would simply say, simply say John Pop, today was hailed for his breakthrough uh, discovery in, in, uh, in cancer medicine. Hmm. So th- they didn't report that a white person was white, but they reported that an African-American was a Negro. And that, of course, is a holdover of its Jim Crow past. And it was, and it was a terrible thing. Yeah, right. and and there have been there have been books about the New York Times, their treatment of the Holocaust, and and other things as well. So yes, um, if, uh, if if you can talk about uh, a little bit, uh, I think uh, all uh, you've always been a, a great storyteller and gotten into. <laughs> I don't uh, know about that, but thank you, Fred. <laughs> well, uh, the kind uh, kind of the the next layer of history, which is kind of how it affects real people. Can can you talk a little bit about that uh, beyond just the politicians? How this, this book really gets into the story of America during that time? Oh well, it, you know, it, it talks about marriages and divorces of of you know women. Uh, you know, is that record keeping was a lot more specious, a lot more dubious in those days. We didn't have computers; it was all on card files. So mm-hmm. uh, a woman might marry a man who was getting overseas and then get his military pay, and then she'd go on to marry a second man. And and then he'd go overseas and she'd get his pay, and then she'd marry a third man, and they'd get married and she, he'd go overseas and then she'd get his pay and she might marry up to ten different men and get get the overseas military pay of ten different men, and then only to be later discovered. The Japanese internment camps. I always wondered what happened. You know, when they were sent to internment camps, all recording devices, anything was deemed, Fred of being of danger to the state was collected and archived. So so if you were if you were Japanese and you had a modest income and you were working in the uh, fields in California and you were sent to an internment camp in uh, Montana or Nevada or New Mexico, they would confiscate anything you had like a camera or a tape a wire recorder, not tape recorder, but they had wire recorders then. Or any any material, maybe like maybe you had a little tiny newspaper and you used to print it. That would be confiscated. All cameras would be uh, were especially popular to be confiscated by local police, by the state police, or by the FBI. And of course, uh, something like they did they didn't keep accurate records at the time, but maybe a hundred thousand, maybe about a hundred fifty thousand Japanese Americans were sent to these internment camps under uh, Herbert, who under uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and Earl Warren. And I always wondered at the end of the war, after they were released from the internment camps, did they get back their cameras and, and wire recorders, printing presses and things like that? I mean, what happened? I mean, they're, they're, can you imagine? Now, they, they don't know how many went to the internment camps because sometimes the FBI had jurisdiction, sometimes state police had jurisdiction, Sometimes the local uh, law authority uh, organization and jurisdiction. So it wasn't always coordinated. It wasn't always uh, kept. It was never kept on, on computer files. 
so they don't know accurately, but they estimate about 150,000 were sent to internment camps. And I always wonder what happened if they ever get back their cameras. Mm -hmm. Last question. I think uh, uh, that we were still a few months away, of course, from the atomic bomb in Japan. Yes. Um, could you kind of uh, talk about in this book, what, what do we have uh, in terms of the story that's where they're building up to that point? Well, Roosevelt had appointed MacArthur Supreme Commander for the Southeast area of Asia. And Nimitz was appointed Supreme Commander of the Pacific Fleet. And so you can see the two of them together moving their forces slowly, slowly, using the CBs, using island hopping, moving toward an eventual uh, invasion of Japan. And you, can't you cannot underestimate the work of the CBs at all, what they did in all these hundreds of little tiny islands that we needed to have landing bases. So they would, go, they, you know, an island would be taken from the Japanese, and then the CBs would come in, and, you know, think of these islands down in the Pacific. They're hot, they're humid, they're infested with poisonous snakes and, uh, and, and uh, mosquitoes and uh, bugs and things like that. And they would go in and they'd chop down trees and they'd, they'd dig out roots and they would level the field and, and uh, pave it over, at least with dirt, smooth it over with machinery and, and bare hands. And, and, and equipment and, you know, axes and hammers and things like that and make a rudimentary airfield for big and small plane to land. And then they'd, they'd finish their work and then they'd and move on to the next island that the uh, American, that MacArthur or uh, Nimitz uh, uh, captured. Uh, and proceeding across the Pacific, up, up the southeast, up, up the southeast, southeastern peninsula. And every island is taken as then uh, uh, an airfield and a base was put in there, you know, and maybe just a, uh, just a few weeks. And the CBs were interesting because, you know, they were made up of mostly older men, uh, men who were maybe, maybe they've been a school teacher for 20 years, but they had, they wore glasses. They couldn't go into active service because they were either too old or they had bad eyesight or they had a limp or something, but they could work in the CBs. Uh, and this, the, there have been lots of books written about them, and thank God, because uh, what they did, uh, their, mod, their unofficial motto was can do, did, done. Uh, they're just a, a marvelous branch of the U.S. Navy and uh, the invasion across the Pacific and up the coast uh, could, was impossible without without their work. And uh, it's just, I guess one of the things that really sticks in my craw, many things stick in my craw, how the Japanese treated Americans, how the monstrous ways they treated Americans in the Bataan Death March, the horrible monstrous ways. Uh, they might take an American prisoner and tie him down and throw little uh, seeds of bamboo sprouts under his body, knowing the bamboo sprouts would grow overnight, and they would literally grow through a man who was staked out. They would grow through and, and kill him. And deprivations of water and the beatings and the killings. There's one story where uh, they uh, had a they had a detachment of Marines as POWs, 
and they made him dig a hole, a large trench in the sand, and told them to get down in. And then when they got down in, they threw gasoline on them and burned them to death. Huh. Uh, there was an island of peaceful uh, Polynesian people who were very friendly to the Americans, uh, but they weren't really involved in the war. I mean, they, they, they might pass a message along or something like this or a, a coconut or something, but they were pretty primitive people. But the Japanese came in, and uh, one day uh, it was in the uh, down in the uh, in the uh, F- uh, Fijian island chain, and and machine gunned them all to death, the entire lot. Uh, there was, of course, you know, the one thing too, Fred, is, is I'd like this book to clear up, is the Germans have always gotten a um, a better treatment of POW camps, especially of American and British flyers, than they deserved. They were they were just as monstrous to, to their to their POWs as the Japanese were. I, I remember I recall one story that the what was called the Mal, uh, Malady France, where a group of 75 about 75 American flyers were trotted out in the uh, open ground and then and then for no reason machine gunned to death by the Germans. And then the Germans went the dead men or the dying men, they went through and they shot them. And then they went through their pockets and pickpocketed, uh, looking for uh, money and pocket knives and pocket watches, things like that. Uh, so don't think for a minute that the Germans were kind to their POWs. They weren't. They were, they were monsters, just as the Japanese were monsters. Really appreciate you joining us today, Anna. And, sure, Fred. Uh, is that, a great I, book. Hate, mm. I hate to end on a down note. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we're we're talking about a world war, so there, <laughs> so there's yeah. not a great way to end it. Um, no, well, I I tell you one thing. Yeah. Let me just tell you one thing is, is sure. that <laughs> your readers will like or your listeners will like to hear is that uh, this is a fun fact. Lou Gehrig died in ni- April of 1945. And he left his estate when he died. His estate, he left his his widow, Eleanor Twitchell Gehrig, was only $171,000. That's all. Uh, And interestingly enough, there were some trophies, obviously, that he got that were left. And they went up for auction. And, for instance, the the trophy he got when he announced to the... uh, People at Yankee Stadium that he was the luckiest man ever born when he when he when people knew that he had Lou Gehrig's disease and was going to die. That that statue only went for five dollars, and his most valuable player uh, stat, uh, trophy, uh, which he got several years earlier, only went for one dollar. Huh. Can you imagine? Those things uh, must be worth hundreds of thousands <laughs> of dollars now, maybe even millions of dollars. And today, and, and they went for one dollar and five dollar, five dollars, uh, in April nineteen forty five. Wow, that, that's amazing. Okay, all, all right, wow. It's like a like a great book. It's April nineteen forty five by Craig Shirley. Thank you. Good talking with you. And that'll be all from us today. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. As always, you can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you haven't already, please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage your friends and family to subscribe. We'll be back with you all tomorrow for our regular programming.
The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.